tactical artifacts of your brand can only be developed accurately if you have the answers to the really fundamental essential questions about who you are and why you do what you do. Otherwise, how do you know if the colors are right? How do you know if it's the right logo? We get people saying, hey, do you think we need a social media campaign? It's like, I don't know. Well, who are you trying to reach? Why? What are you hoping to communicate to them? So these tactical, very, very important tactics and strategies of communication or brand or brand identity, they need something to come from. Haley Boning is the CEO and founder of StoryForge. She founded the company in 2014 after decades of experience working with leaders of Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and startups to create alignment and engagement through storytelling. Haley is also founding board member of Conscious Capitalism Columbus and has served on Conscious Capitalism Inc.'s Community Advisory Council and Chapter Task Force, where she has helped redesign the international chapter model. When she's not advocating for business as a force for good in the world, through her clients or community engagement, you can find Haley washing her bright yellow 1972 Volkswagen, running late to a yoga class, or grinding a winch on a sailboat somewhere in the world. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Gravity Podcast. We're here today with Haley Boning. And um, yeah, it's great to have a chance to sit down with you and to have you on the podcast to hear your story. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So um, let's start at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your early days, the early version of you and, and your, your family dynamics, where you're from, anything that feels important to share. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I was recently going through some boxes as I was packing, and there were photographs of me and drawings and, and things from my childhood. And my my boyfriend said, oh my gosh, it's just a little version of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I was uh, smiling and optimistic and silly uh, yeah. as a young kid. I grew up in New York. Okay. So my parents, uh, my dad was in the educational publishing business, working for a small family business. My mother was a librarian. I had a great childhood, I have to mm. say. It was um, it was happy, and mm. um, my parents were both very solidly middle class. Um, my dad was the first person in his family to graduate from high school, let alone go to college. So, you know, hard work and education were all values, and uh, it was just a it was a great time to be a kid. Mm-hmm. There's no social media. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it was a lot of outside, and right. we were. Um, I grew up in Mamaroneck, which is on the Long Island Sound, just north of the city. Mm-hmm. So we had that great mix of city and nature uh, to grow up in, which was great. Nice. And so, tell me mm-hmm. a little bit more about that little version of you. What were you into? What was it that certainly, in hindsight, you go back and look at and say? maybe connects to where you're at today, but just tell me more about, you know, what your interests were and and what stands out from childhood. Yeah. I think one of the big things was that I I was immediately as a young child attracted to story and storytelling and theater. So my dad worked his way through college at Iona College in New York Mm -hmm. and happened upon theater. He didn't realize you could do it as a career, but he was involved in theater and the production of theater. So I grew up around musical theater and going to Broadway and seeing shows. And I was a naturally, I think, emotive, dramatic kid. So -hmm. so theater was one thing. But there was something else I found when I was going through the boxes two weeks ago. And I was creating clubs. 
Hmm. And I would draw little logos and I would come up with a name for the club. And then I would make little lists of, well, what kind of a club was it about? And what mm. were we going to try to do in the club? And mm. who would be a member of the club? And mm. of course, at the time it was about clubs, but I look at it now and I think, oh my gosh, I was building brands. Mm. I was trying to think about all the different ways that I could express these beliefs that these little brands had that I was creating. I wouldn't have used those words, but mm -hmm. this- well, where did that come from? I mean, mm -hmm. even just the the understanding of a club, was that something that was in your world? Or, you know, where do you think that you got exposed to this idea of brand or belonging to something? I don't know exactly what it was. Well, that's the word. I think it was belonging. Mm -hmm. I think I was, a, um, I grew up as an only child, but I, often felt like I was an only child who had wanted to be part of a really big family. Mm -hmm. So I was always trying to make families mm -hmm. and create groups of people that things that people could belong to or that I wanted to belong to. Mm -hmm. Theater was great for that. You know, you pull together a production, you hire all the right people, you you recruit folks to come with you along on this journey. And then the production ends and you go on and you create another one. So mm -hmm. I think I was always attracted to that idea of people coming together and working together to do something amazing, mm -hmm. whatever amazing was. Interesting. That's funny. I mean, it's not like a, a typical thing that a child is doing, you know, creating clubs. It's funny, but, you know, I can certainly see how that, that does connect. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more. Were you active in the theater from like a performing standpoint or from a back of house, front of house? Tell me more about kind of how that unfolds yeah. in your life. Well, I think as a as a young girl, I thought my ultimate goal was to be an actress. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to act. Um, I followed that dream all the way through high school and into college. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a couple of different theater programs. And uh, I got into the Tisch School of the Arts at New York University. Mm -hmm. And I went in guns a-blazing. I was going to be an actress. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to land in a program, a studio called the Playwrights Horizon Studio. And playwrights had a philosophy around teaching theater that regardless of what you wanted to grow up to become, a director or stage manager, you had to learn all the different aspects of what it meant to put on a show. Mm -hmm. You had to learn to direct, you had to learn to act, you had to learn to do the sound. And that experience of doing all of the different parts of the program helped me realize, I think, that acting wasn't really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what, what was drawing me to the theater in the first place. It was really the productions themselves, putting on the productions. Mm -hmm. I found myself doing a lot of stage managing, mm -hmm. uh, assistant directing. Mm -hmm. So putting the shows, mounting the shows was what I was really interested in. Mm. So that was something that was more emerging as like a, an interest, a passion, something that felt more you. I'm just curious, like if it was... The, the idea of being on stage, the idea of coming forward and taking that risk, and the challenge of all of that, I think, can be pretty daunting for a lot of people. So it wasn't that you were afraid or, I don't know, anxious about doing that. It was more that you found this other thing that was alive for you. Yeah, it took a couple of years to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it was, I still wanted to be on stage, but everyone else wanted me to be their stage manager. Mm -hmm. And I would say, but I want to act. And they would say, but you're so good at this. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to realize that my strengths, my greater strengths were in the creation of the thing mm -hmm. rather than the 
execution of the thing, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does make sense. You have a presence about you that I could see it going either way, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, just like I'm imagining, I actually just saw the Martin Scorsese movie that he just came out with. Spoiler alert, there's a cameo. He has a cameo at the end of the movie. And, you know, you see like Tarantino and others do it where they take these little roles and yet, you know, directing, producing is really, you know, their ultimate skill. There's still some, something alive about being in front of the camera too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I, the past month I've probably done four or five keynote addresses and I love to get on stage and Uh I love to feel the energy of the audience and share a story and feel everyone in the room coming along with me. Yeah. But it's not as meaningful to me Uh as it is to create the thing, to start from scratch and build something. Yeah, got it, that makes sense. Okay, so then what? So you you find this thing that you realize that you're really good at and you you really love to do, where do you go next? Well, while I was at university, I had a realization. I kind of threw myself into theater. I found this amazing theater company that was operating out of Soho at the time and started working on productions and working on summer theater uh, productions. And I realized that that's not what I wanted out of my college career. Mm -hmm. And I had this revelation about a year in. I thought, you know, I'm learning a lot about the theater outside of school. Is this really what I want my degree to be in? And I remember I called my dad and I said, dad, I'd like to have lunch with you. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. I said, you know, just the two of us, can we, can we go have lunch? And I found out later that he was really worried mm. that I was going to tell him I was pregnant. Because <laughs> I, I approached it with such gravity. Mm. I sat down for, for lunch with him and I said, dad, I think I've, I've made a decision. I want to leave the Tisch School of the Arts that I've spent my entire life trying to get to. I found this program and it's a great books program. And I'd never heard of such a thing. And uh, neither had he, but he was very relieved that it was about college and not um, uh, welcoming a grandchild into Mm -hmm. the world a little too early. Mm -hmm. But the Gallatin School was this tiny little program within uh, New York University that was based on Chicago's School of Social Thought. Mm. And it was steeped in the great works of Western literature. So rather than taking classes and tests, we talked. Mm-hmm. We read the great books and we discussed the great books. No secondary text, no tertiary text, mm-hmm. the books. Maybe two or three different translations, mm-hmm. but that was, uh, that was what I did for the remainder of my career at New York University was mm-hmm. study great books and talk mm-hmm. about them. Mm-hmm. And, and what was it about that that really had you want to focus on that? You know, you were talking about like your career and, and did you see something in the world of books that you wanted to make a career or was it just a curiosity, the learning, you know, what was it? Yeah. I wish I was that thoughtful about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really wasn't thinking about a career at that point. Like, yeah. I knew, I knew when I was in my teens that I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And in my high school years, I thought, well, theater is the way to do that. Tell stories that people connect with, help people through those stories, you know, have some kind of insight and go out into the world. And then when I became a bit disillusioned with theater, changed into great books, I, I don't think I really had a sense of where it was going to take me. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll get a master's degree and teach Shakespeare, you mm-hmm. know, to, to college students and help them have an insight about themselves. And that's the direction I was going to take it. I thought that that's my purpose. I will go teach people about um, stories and storytelling. Mm-hmm. 
but then that didn't pan out either. So mm. I left NYU. I went to Washington, D.C. after graduating and took a job with an organization that accredited liberal arts colleges and programs. And I thought, this is great. I'll, I'll work in the academic world, mm -hmm. and then I'll go on and get my master's degree and my PhD in literature, mm -hmm. and I'll, I will save the world through, through teaching it to college students. Mm -hmm. And that experience helped me understand that I am not an academic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't match my, my nature or my personality. Mm -hmm. um, why, why is that? I think there's a pace that is necessary to be an academic that doesn't match my energy. Mm -hmm. So I like to do things quickly. I like to move mm. through things. I, mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't think I have the patience to, yeah. to sit and research and study in the way that my, my incredibly talented academic friends can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me neither. And uh, yeah, it's, it's actually can be quite frustrating if you're, if you're not of that kind of mindset. There's a place for it, but it can also certainly not be the fastest, maybe most effective way to really change the world if that's what you want to do. Important though, and and you know, thank God for those that have taken that path, but not for you or I. No, no. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm gonna go back just out of curiosity. This idea of wanting to change the world at a very young age. How do you remember that? You know, what is it that you remember about that kind of sense or feeling or where did it come from? Mm, that's a great question. I think my parents instilled in me the value of being a helper, mm. of trying to help, help people, make the world better for people. And I, at an early age, saw the power of story and storytelling to do that, mm -hmm. that to help people and to change the world, we could help people have insights. Mm -hmm. You know, I watched, I watched people watching theater and experiencing theater. You could see tears come to their eyes. You could see insights. You could see them leave changed in some fundamental way. Mm -hmm. In university, studying books, studying the great books and knowing how stories and storytelling and books can change thinking and in changing thinking, change actions and then change the results. That was interesting to me. I think that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. But what I know is at that time, if you told me that business was a way to do that, mm -hmm. I would have told you you were crazy. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> for me, there were two different things. There were people working in the world to try to make the world a better place. And then there was this business world. Yeah, And I didn't think the two could ever overlap. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, expand on that, you know, how does that then start to shift for you where you start to see how that might be part of your path? Well, after, after a few years of working in DC and working in this academic accreditation agency, I was trying to get back to New York, actually. I was doing interviews in New York and I was trying to get back home. I felt like that's where I belonged and DC had kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And someone introduced me to a job with uh, this company out of Columbus, Ohio, that was in the retail space, and they were looking for somebody in New York. And it just happened to match my skill set at the time. And I said, great, well, mm -hmm. I'll do that. That'll be the thing that gets me back to New York. Mm -hmm. So I took the job. And by the end of the interview process, they said, oh, no, you're going to be based in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and I thought, where? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought Columbus, Ohio was near Idaho. <laughs> you know, I got on the plane and landed here. I was like, we're here an uh -huh. hour later. How is that possible? Yeah. But really I thought, well, I, I visited many foreign countries before, so I'll just treat this like an international 
journey to a strange and foreign land. I will mm. learn the ways of their people. Mm. I will get some great experience for two to three years. And then clearly I'll go back to New York. Mm -hmm. um, and that was 1997. <laughs> but when I got into the business world, really my first experience in a for-profit business, there were certain things about it that I found really exhilarating. Mm. You know, and what was the business? It was a little company you might have heard called The Limited. Yeah, yep. Uh, it was called The Limited Inc. at that point. Mm -hmm. And I started on the external communication side, mm -hmm. um, doing media relations. Okay. But, you know, so many years ago, we used fax machines, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So I did that for the first couple of years, and I found that the pace of it felt really good. Mm -hmm. um, I was working with some of the smartest people I'd ever met in my life. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but there was an entrepreneurial spirit about that place, even mm -hmm. as a corporation that was a public company. Mm -hmm. uh, you could, if you were ambitious and if you were interesting and you were creative, you could come up with jobs. Mm -hmm. I think every job I had there was, I created or was created for me, mm -hmm. um, which was fun, Yeah, not knowing what I was doing. Mm. And uh, yeah, definitely was a huge part of Columbus and a pretty exciting atmosphere to be in, you know, knowing many family and friends that have been a part of that organization over the years, for better or worse, you know, it's obviously pretty well documented the worst part of that too. But I think back at that time, it was a a pretty exciting ride for many people here in Columbus to be on. Yeah. And there were parts of it that didn't feel congruent. Mm. I don't know that I would have had that word, mm -hmm. that, that I could have used that word. I was It was my first corporate job. So sure. I took everything as fact. Well, mm -hmm. this is just the way it must be. Mm -hmm. This is the way business must be. Yeah, It was a time when the primacy of shareholder value wasn't questioned. Mm -hmm. You know, we are here to create shareholder value and that's why we exist as a company. Mm -hmm. And that felt not congruent with my values, but I couldn't have articulated it then. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I was doing good work with great people. Um, it was there that I learned my responsibility to give back to the community as a a volunteer, as an investor in the community. There were there were many good things and insights that I had while I was there. Mm -hmm. And certainly did a lot of fun, a fun work. But um, mm -hmm. but that shareholder, that idea of shareholder value as being the number one reason to be, to make a profit, that never really sat well with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And I know just both having been involved in you even more than I in the conscious community world, which we can talk more about, you know, obviously the idea of being able to have more than just a bottom line, a financial bottom line in the purpose of a business, something we both care quite a bit about. So how long did you end up being at The Limited? I was there from 97 until 2013. Mm which was a remarkable period of change for yeah, that company. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, in 2013 when you decided to make a jump, what was it that had you want to make the change? Oh, that was very simple. So one of the things that I was fortunate to work on that my team worked on was all the mergers and the acquisitions, the downsizings, the mm -hmm. resizings, mm -hmm. all that massive change, which Were was, you still L Brands corporate? At that point it was L Brands, L Brands yeah. corporate, mm -hmm. yeah. I did a, a small stint at Express uh, mm -hmm. during that period, but mostly I was at the corporate offices. And um, 
I worked on, I think, every major merger acquisition or downsizing in that period. Mm -hmm. And on the last one, I got to include myself. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, we were going through a lot of change and my leaders asked me for lots of different scenarios about how I could downsize my function. Mm -hmm. uh, that was an enterprise-wide function. We were serving all the different businesses all across the globe. And I probably came out with four or five different scenarios. Interestingly, none of them included my position being mm -hmm. eliminated, mm -hmm. which was the ultimate decision. And I was grateful. I was given the opportunity to stay mm -hmm. and stay in a different role. And I decided that I'd had, I'd had a good run. Mm -hmm. Like it was... I'd learned a lot and I wanted to do something else, but I didn't quite know what that was. Mm -hmm. So you took the time to figure that out. Then what happens? You you don't know what it is. You know it's time. Yeah. Um, and you take some time to figure out what's next. Yes, I did. And I was fortunate. It was my first, maybe second experience actually with coaching, with working mm. with a coach and taking the time to reflect, taking the physical and mental distance that was necessary to get the right perspective, mm. who I was and what I wanted to do. I think when you're in any organization for that long, you have a hard time, or certainly I had a hard time, separating myself from the role that I had mm -hmm. and extracting my identity from the role that I've been playing for that many years, mm -hmm. almost two decades. And it took me a while to get there, but uh, realizing what my values were understanding what my superpowers were, and then trying to find where all of those different circles in the Venn diagram overlap, mm -hmm. the things that I'm good at, the things that I love doing, and then things that people will pay good money for mm -hmm. that could actually be a business. And, and backing up to the coaching piece of it, mm -hmm. I'm always kind of curious, especially people like you and I that were working with coaches back in those days where it wasn't quite as widely accepted or known as it is today. Tell me a little bit more about how your coach came into your life. Mm. I would say my first coach came in at a time when I thought coaching was punitive. Mm. I thought that in business, you get a coach when you're not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And I had been promoted into a role above my peers to lead my peers, which was terrifying to me. And I was given a coach and then I realized it was an incredible gift. It was this beautiful, confidential space to recognize what I was really good at and what my strengths were and understand where I where I had gaps and I needed to either improve or, which was another major revelation to me, go hire people mm -hmm. who are good at the things that I'm not good at and create a team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was this um, somebody local? Yes, it was. Uh, it was actually somebody out of Cincinnati. Okay. Yeah. So I, yeah. I was fortunate. I had two coaches during my corporate career. And then in this transition period, my coach, Megan, helped me really have the insights that I needed to have about my boundaries, mm -hmm. my non-negotiables, mm. and then try to envision what a world might look like if I was working on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've just benefited so much from coaches and therapists and mentors and, you know, people that just help you along the way. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to hear how that's, you know, been true for other people. And I like to talk about it because it's important for others to know that you don't have to do this on your own. 
In fact, it's really tough to do it on your own and there's no reason to make it tough. I mean, certainly coaches aren't free, but um, if you can afford it, and even if you don't think you can, it might be a good place to shift your resources because it can really help you get where you want to go and be able to do the things you want to do. And, you know, it's funny to say, you know, you thought about it as punitive. I mean, not funny. It's it's very real. I mean, I think a lot of people had some sort of stigma around it. You know, the idea of asking for help. I've heard this described by other people. You wouldn't learn to play guitar. You wouldn't take up a sport or do anything that you needed to learn without getting some help, taking a class, having a coach, a trainer, you know, something. So why why around like life skills do we find that that wouldn't be additive? Yeah, I think it goes back to that unfortunate notion that somehow leaders are born Mm-hmm. or experts are born, they're just born that way, rather than it's work. Mm-hmm. And you can work at it, and you can get better at it. And mm-hmm. maybe there are qualities, you know, I think about entrepreneurship. I never imagined myself as an entrepreneur. I had no models to follow. Everyone in my family worked for somebody else. This idea that you would risk everything to, you know, try to start something. I never imagined that I could possibly do that. And I could never have done it without the coaches that I've had. Mm-hmm. And yet when I when we started, I started the business with a, a co-founder. We worked with a coach to help us put together our, our partnership agreement and really make sure we were the right partners for each other at that moment. And I remember at the end of our first coaching session, he turned to us and he said, you know, Haley, I think you might really benefit from a CEO peer group. Mm-hmm. And once again, I remember in my head thinking, oh, it's punitive. Mm-hmm. Why? Am I not good enough? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not good enough. My my partner's a, an entrepreneur and he's been proven and tested and, mm-hmm. and you just don't think I'm good enough. Mm-hmm. And what I realized in hindsight was that that coach also saw that that's something I could benefit from, mm-hmm. that I could hear the insights that peers had to, had to share with me. Mm-hmm. And is that what you did? Did you end up joining and what peer group was I that? Did. It, took me, it took me longer than I would like to admit yeah. to take that advice. Yeah. But Artie Isaac, oh, uh, yeah. who you might know, I'm oh, yeah. a member of one of his Vistage groups. And I like to lead with Artie rather than lead with Vistage because I think they're two different things. Yeah. I hope he doesn't, doesn't mind me saying that. Yeah, I mean, Artie is a special guy. And um, I'm sure the way that he does Vistage is unique to Artie. Artie's been on the podcast. He's a friend. I love Artie. And yeah, you know, I do think that, you know, Vistage is is great. I was in YPO forums. I, I just think, you know, any of that sort of peer structured format is is very, very valuable, regardless of the facilitator. You know, you can really just get so much from learning from other people. That's why people advocate for group therapy and, you know, any sort of group experience. You really can see yourselves. I mean, it's why we do this podcast is you're sharing the experience of work, of life mm-hmm. with other people and you learn just from that sharing um, and you can help each other. So it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful part of certainly being an entrepreneur and, and a CEO and leader, you know, to, to have that. Yeah, I think it's important as well to think about what measure or what yardstick are you using for success in those groups? I've found other coaching groups or peer coaching groups where back to that shareholder value question that are 
far more interested in helping you grow your business, helping you make a profit, helping you prepare to exit, scale, you know, things that are um, a different set of values to the values that I have. So finding those coaches and those groups that are more aligned with the principles of conscious capitalism mm -hmm. um, and less adherence to Milton Friedman's uh, economic uh, principles. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit then about, you know, kind of how you end up an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, I always like when people who didn't see themselves as that end up in that space. I think it's another important thing to highlight. You know, I, I didn't even know, and maybe this is just part of like a period of time. I didn't really even know what an entrepreneur was. And I've talked about this. I was yet the, you know, stringing tennis rackets when I was 13 years old. I bought a machine and had a business, but I never saw myself as an entrepreneur until well after I had started my business. And I think there is like an identity thing there that maybe today is, is much easier to understand. It's a major, you can pick it in school, you can study it. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of magazines named after it, right? Like there's, it's a whole thing. And, and it's, I think, fairly honored and, and seen today, even maybe glamorized, mm -hmm. um, but not always the case. And I still think today people don't necessarily see themselves as that for whatever reason. Mm. And just kind of curious, you know, how you, how you went about stepping into it. Yeah. Well, about, about six months before I left L Brands, I knew that my role was not going to be there in six months. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I had time to think and I put together what I realized now was a business plan. Mm -hmm. You know, who was I? What did I do? Who was I going to serve? What were my products and services? And I put it all on a piece of paper and I brought it to one of my mentors, Bruce. And I said, Bruce, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to launch this business. And I described all the things and he very kindly smiled at me and said, why don't you put that piece of paper away? <laughs> and why don't you just go out and find out what people need? Mm. And I took his advice uh, thankfully, and I put the piece of paper away and I just started to talk to the people that I thought were my customer mm -hmm. and to find out what they needed. And it was liberating. <laughs> yeah. That experience. Interesting. I'm assuming that's Bruce Saul. Yes. Yeah. When you say Bruce and you say L Brands and you say mentorship, and Bruce, I think, listens to the podcast fairly regularly. I know he texts me when hi, he Bruce. does. Yes. So if you're listening, hi, Bruce. Um, and this is uh, maybe a, a little love for Bruce because it's always great when I hear somebody mention his name and, and being mentored by him. And I'm kind of constantly still amazed at just how many people he has done that for. I've basically continue to consider Bruce, you know, a mentor, a friend, you know, I love Bruce. And um, he's been so helpful to me that whenever he tells me something, I, I usually listen. Um, because every time that I have listened, it served me very, very well. In fact, it's funny, you know, one of the first things Bruce helped me with is I wanted to go back to get an MBA. And he said, I don't think you should do that. Why don't you just join YPO? And so he he's the reason I ended up in that peer network, in that forum atmosphere, you know, like a vestige. So anyway, yeah, just 
shout out to Bruce and yeah. for all the many, many people that he has helped guide along the way. That's fun. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love about this community is you can see the threads that are woven through the fabric. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you pull at one, you find that everything else is connected to it, mm -hmm. and all the people are connected. You know, where New York, which um, I love dearly, my home city, it's so big, it's hard to see the threads. Mm -hmm. But in Columbus, you can you can see the weaving. Yeah. Well, it's also a thing that I don't think, um, from a story standpoint, Columbus does a good enough job in really highlighting because it's it's an underrated, unique about this community in particular. I laugh when you know I heard you describe it as like a foreign land, but you know, in a lot of ways, it, it's it's really pretty unique. And one of the things that I think is totally underrated or underestimated or not talked about enough is just how open and supportive and willing people are to spend time with you, to give you advice, to introduce you to somebody, to do any number of things that like are massively impactful yeah. in certainly starting a business. And that doesn't exist everywhere. It really is something that I think is pretty unique to maybe the Midwest or to Columbus in particular. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, there's a genuineness about, which is I think where Columbus and I have a, have congruence. It's a genuineness, or I hope we do, this real desire to help. Mm -hmm. Just genuinely help without ego, without the idea that there's some reciprocity that's going to exist in the future, just a, a desire to see other people succeed, mm -hmm. especially in the business community. It's I think that is a rare thing yeah. for businesses to want other businesses to succeed, even competitors, people right. who are in the, in the same competitive space um, helping each other. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your business. I want to, you know, hear you, you took the leap and you're an entrepreneur and it sounds like you've used all of the experience, including going back to your childhood and now, you know, created a business around it. Talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Well, StoryForge was birthed by myself and my, my co-founder, Barry Chandler, who is uh, now um, not part of the business. I, I acquired the business from him over the pandemic. Mm. But we founded it in 2014 with the two different experiences that we had. So I came from the internal communication side, internal communications, change communications, trying to get everybody in a really large business on the same page about what they were trying to do. Barry came at the business from the external side as a former CMO. But we were both frustrated by the same thing. And that was that businesses were often telling the wrong story for the wrong reasons. And that a lot of money and a lot of time and investment was spent by businesses creating these big, beautiful, glossy brand books mm -hmm. um, that would then sit on a shelf because nobody knew how to use them. Mm -hmm. And this recognition that if we could help businesses really unearth what's most meaningful about their story, and they could use that story as a tool to get everyone in their business on the same page, then they would be better positioned to have the impact that they want. Mm -hmm. So recognizing how story and storytelling can create insights and change thinking, and as a result of that, change actions and behaviors and get different results. And that was something that people were missing. 
Yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned this earlier. There's just this common thread of storytelling, you know, that seems to be, in hindsight, a real consistent for you that you have this strong belief around story. And I, I've talked about this, you know, some friends of mine have shared with me their appreciation for for words and naming and branding and. I get it. I think it's it's incredibly important. I think it's probably another one of these things that's underestimated, but it does take some education, some maybe it's easier today, I don't know, that people need to get why there's value in spending resources doing this thing that isn't going directly into something quite as tangible. Mm. Now, it is. It's very tangible and it's and it's maybe more important than mm-hmm. any other asset, but it does require really selling that and, and getting people, educating them on that, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the problems is that a lot of people start with the tool. I need a logo. Yeah. I need a brand identity. I need it to look good. When it's three or four steps backward where they really are having the issue. Mm-hmm. So we would often hear from our clients, that the thing they were struggling with is that everybody's on a different page. It's feeling very dissonant. You know, I've got people going in five different directions. Nobody's sure what the priorities are. I can't get people to connect or I'm hiring people and then they leave within the first year because they didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm using air quotes to say it. Mm-hmm. And it's usually that moment where there's confusion, there's dissonance, there's conflict that businesses look for something to solve that problem Mm -hmm. when it's usually just as simple as getting everybody on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's something that you can use internally equally as much as it is an outward facing thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, do you do develop the tools? I mean, that's part of the business too. It's, it's not just the, the brand building. You end up kind of going and giving people the full suite of those services. Yes, but it's about sequencing. A a lot of times we start with the tactical Mm because we can see it. It's easy to check it off a list. Mm -hmm. I need a brand and I need a logo. When somebody comes in and says, though, they need the logo, they need a website. I mean, I've been in this experience before where I'm pretty brand driven. And even then it's like, no, we already have brand. You know, we already have mission statement. We already have vision and values. Like I need X, you know? Do you struggle to sometimes get people to take that step back? Yeah, it's a, it's sometimes a struggle. And I think that it's helping people understand that the tactical artifacts of your brand can only be developed accurately if you have the answers to the really fundamental essential questions about who you are and why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how do you know if the colors are right? Mm-hmm. You know, How do you know if it's the right logo? Often we, we get people saying, hey, do you think we need a social media campaign? It's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Who are you trying to reach? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. What are you hoping to communicate to them? So these, these tactical, very, very important tactics and strategies of communication or brand or brand identity, they need something to come from. Mm-hmm. They need a, a, a strategy, a story, something that you're trying to achieve in order to decide which ones are right for you. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Tell me a little bit about how you've transitioned the business over the years, including acquiring the business and and where you're seeing the business going today. 
Yeah, it's a it's such a different landscape today than than when we started in 2014. I think at the time, I really believed that if I could do the work and help the leadership team have the insights, talk to their stakeholders, help them understand all of the needs that they were filling for their stakeholders and create that meaningful story around it and hand them the story, then everything would be solved. Mm-hmm. And what I think we've realized over the last couple of years, it's way more than that. Mm. You know, we need to have the insights and then we need to forge that story, that that one page that you can get everybody on the same page with. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of work that happens after that. Mm-hmm. You need to get everybody on the page. You need to create alignment. You need to make sure that everything about your business and everyone in your business is living that story every day. Mm-hmm. I think this is something you you and your business do really well is using why you exist, your purpose and your vision and the beliefs that you have about the world, using that as a filter for thinking and decision-making and strategy mm-hmm. and not thinking of those two things as separate. Yes, and it does require a lot of ongoing work to continue to make sure that that is understood by everybody in the organization. And you know, I have found that as we've grown and as I changed roles and got further away from the day-to-day of the business, that the messaging, the why we are here, who we are, how we do it, how we connect with people, what the purpose of all of this is, gets lost if you're not careful. You yeah. really have to continue to hold the hands of the brand at all times or else you know it just it just gets diluted and and lost you know there was a period of time not that long ago where i realized that we had so many new people who had not really been told the history the story the the words on the wall were just words on the wall you know they didn't know what they meant really and they couldn't then consequently translate that into how they shared themselves with with our clients and customers. And it was like, oh shit, that's got to change fast. It's a never ending process. You don't just create it, give the page and you're done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I think that purpose-driven businesses are more like sailboats than they are like motorboats. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a motorboat, you point the boat in the direction that you want to go and you give it all the possible gas and you go in a straight line toward that. Sailboats know where they're trying to go, but to get there, they they have to consider the wind and the current and the weather, mm-hmm. and they tack back and forth toward that goal. And that, to me, is the best metaphor I've found for what a purpose-driven business is. Mm-hmm. But for everyone to be tacking back and forth and to be making those constant decisions every day, you need everybody to understand what are the parameters. Yeah, you know what are we trying to do and why, and that's for me where storytelling is really helpful because mm-hmm. it's it's the two sides of it as you said stories and the most meaningful stories are both told and lived and sometimes it's just telling people the story can help them have the insight and contextualize all of those things that you mentioned but sometimes they have to live the story so i was at a a meeting with a client last week and they had to order lunch for about i think it was about 160 people So they ordered lunch from Freedom a la carte. That was one small, tiny little decision that the business made. Mm -hmm. 
but they were able to make that decision in a way that was aligned with their values, mm -hmm. that supported an organization that was doing good in the community, that then lifted people or lifting people out of difficult situations and putting them on the right path. It was just ordering lunch. Mm -hmm. But in business every day, we make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions. And what are we using as the filter for our decision making? Yep. And how do you filter knowing that, you know, you care so much about conscious capitalism, purpose-driven business? How do you end up filtering your clients knowing that, you know, this is something that's so important to, to you personally and to your business? Do you only work with customers, clients that have that shared mm. vision and value? Yes. And we haven't always done that right. Mm-hmm. I know I have taken clients on in the past that did not match our values and our vision and our beliefs, but thankfully those are few and far between. Mm -hmm. So we look for three things in a client. The first is boldness and ambition. Clients that are really trying to do big, interesting things in the world. The second is that they're trying to do those things to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And they can use whatever language they want. Some people are overtly conscious capitalists. Some people don't realize that they are until I, until I show them or observe, or observe them doing it. And then the third thing is we want to make sure that we're working with businesses that have the latitude and the resources in order to make the changes in order to have that impact. Mm. Got it. You know, it's interesting. Somebody once shared with me the the narrower the niche, the greater the opportunity. Mm. And yet that's scary when you really decide like you're only going to work with a certain kind of person organization. Maybe it's gotten a little easier today. In some ways it maybe is harder because a lot of people are saying it, but don't actually mean it. Right. Mm. So then you have to kind of decipher who's really, you know, aligned. And that takes some courage because that might mean it's harder to to fill up your your client base but once you get known for being that it creates all kinds of opportunities yeah that's one of the things i think i love about storyforge is that we are very very focused we know who we work with we know the work that we do we know why we do it and that focus enables us to be as focused in who we're speaking with, how we're targeting our marketing, and how we're targeting our business development. Mm -hmm. It is revelatory and freeing when yeah. you can get that kind of clarity. Absolutely. Well, good. Yeah, thank you for uh, what you're doing. And I know, you know you've taken a real active role in the Conscious Capitalism Group here. And yeah, I'm just a big believer in this idea that capitalism business really is the best way I've seen to really solve problems and hopefully make a difference in the world in doing so. And I know even as I say that, there's probably still a stigma around capitalism. There's a stigma around mm -hmm. um, business for profit. And I think groups like Conscious Capitalism and others that have really been waving the flag that in fact, you know, you can do well and do good. And, and if you do well, you can do a lot of good with that. And it doesn't have to be disconnected. It really can all be fully integrated. And and I do believe that is a, a huge piece of the puzzle as we move forward, you know, into challenging times. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's that combination that's both so disconcerting for some people, but also so powerful. Mm -hmm. The combination of capitalism and consciousness. Yeah. You know, depending on the group I speak with, they're incredibly uncomfortable with one of those two words. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but it's the bringing of them together. It's yeah. that recognition that purpose without profit is just a dream. Mm -hmm. But profit without purpose is kind of meaningless. Yeah, totally. So finding those two things together is the the key. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thank you. It was great to be here. Great. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 